Well, if you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 18. John 18, and we will be in verses 1 through 27 of this chapter today. As Jesus closes his prayer at the end of chapter 17, we are ushered into what we could say is the final section of John's gospel. These closing chapters form the the climax of this narrative as they describe the hour of Jesus's glorification that has been spoken of over and over again here in John's gospel. This is the point to which John has been driving, and it serves as the, the final argument as he calls us to believe in Jesus and to find life in him. In fact, we might say that the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus that's described here in chapters 18 to 21 are not just the climax of the Gospel of John, but they are the climax of of salvation history. And they, therefore, are the climax of history itself. Everything in the Old Testament, its, its heroes and rituals, its prophecies and its shadows, they were all pointing to and leading to this act of sacrificial atonement and matchless love. And everything that we experience now or into eternity as children of God through faith in Christ flows from the hours and the days that we read about in these chapters. And so we are stepping in many ways onto holy and glorious ground as we look at this. Here we get to stare into the darkness of what sin has done, and we also are able to behold the glory of God that's seen surprisingly in the rejection and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah and the Son of God. And as we look into this reality, we are compelled to believe, to believe in Jesus and find life in him. As John moves us out of the upper room, he continues to highlight the fact that Jesus was was willingly submitting himself to the plan that he and the Father had made together, knowing exactly where this path was going to lead him. He, he steps, as it were, into the current of these events and then allows that current to take him wherever it desires, while also being the one who is sovereign and in, in control of all of the twists and turns of the river. These verses invite us then to meditate on the staggering, the staggering reality that Jesus willingly walked into the jaws of death for us. That's how I want to state our big idea today. Jesus willingly walked into the jaws of death for us. Emphasis here would be on that word willingly. And secondly, on those two final words, for us. Jesus willingly walked into the jaws of death for us. This week, I've been listening to a a book about the early days of George Washington's presidency, and one of the intriguing things that I've come to find out about Washington was how little he actually wanted to be president. Um, Some people would argue, in fact, that it was his lack of desire that made him the perfect man for the job because he wouldn't uh, take it on and turn this, this new nation into another monarchy. Um, but the fact remains that it was somewhat of a, an act of self-sacrifice for Washington to put aside his particular desires so that he could serve this nation that he had founded. I was thinking about that, and I, I think we could also come up with other examples of people who have laid aside their rights or their desires in service of others. 
many of them are much more dramatic and, and even more willingly done than, than what we read about Washington. Uh, we've heard stories of those who have died in service to others or in service to a, a nation or a cause. And even each of us, in our own small ways, we have from time to time chosen a path that's difficult for us that leads to blessing for someone else. And so we have some small understanding of what Christ is doing in this willing act, an act that, that he willingly placed himself into a difficult situation, an a atrocious situation for the good of others. And it was an act that entailed much more than simply physical death. We might wonder why he did it. Why would he willingly walk into the jaws of death? And in answer to that question, we could look back to a theme verse of this larger section in John 13, verse 1, where we read that when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus was driven by his love. He was driven by his love for us and by his desire to glorify his Father. And because of that, he willingly walked into the jaws of death. As we think about him willingly walking towards death, we, we begin to see this unfold in John 18. So look with me at John 18, beginning in verse 1. God's word says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. 
The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with me? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Now, obviously, this passage is continuing the narrative of of what exactly happened to Jesus in his final hours. But John's not just telling a story and relating facts. He is also helping us to see the theological and the practical significance of Christ's willing sacrifice. And I think we see his wider purpose in places like verse 11, where Jesus says, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup? that the Father has given me. And then again in verse 14, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And so we want to understand the storyline, but we also want to mine out the meaning of this story. I think it's specifically seen in those two verses. Um, And as we seek to do that, let's, let's just start by looking at these first 11 verses and we'll say, Uh, put over these verses, Jesus came to drink the cup of wrath so that we do not have to. That's what I want to say about these first 11 verses. Jesus came to drink the cup of wrath so that we do not have to. If that cup of wrath sounds strange to you, uh, we'll say more about it in a moment. But Jesus came to drink the cup of wrath so that we do not have to. In verses 1 to 3, as John often does, the stage is set, and all of the characters in the story sort of take their places. You might think about watching a play, and as the curtain rises, you sort of take in what's there happening in front of you. You determine where you're at in the telling of this particular story. And here, as the curtain goes up, we notice that it's obviously night, but we can see maybe some olive trees planted in rows, and off in the distance to the west, we notice the temple across the Kidron Valley. We're told here that that Jesus and his disciples had left the city walls of Jerusalem, heading to the east, down into the Kidron Valley that, that runs alongside the Temple Mount, and then across a brook and up the western slopes of the Mount of Olives until they arrived at a garden, what we know from the other Gospels as the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus and the 11 disciples entered into this place, and we read elsewhere that Jesus withdrew a little bit deeper into the garden with Peter and James and John in order to pray. As we look at it on the stage, as it were, in the shadows, we can sort of make out amongst the olive trees the disciples of Jesus. Some of them are sleeping, but Jesus there is engaged in in prayer, a deep prayer that involves the whole of who he is, body and soul. 
A moment later, we hear maybe offstage the, the noise of boots and, and armor. And in comes this band of soldiers and some officers of the Pharisees. Many of them are carrying torches and weapons, likely spears and, and swords as they come in. It's this strange coalition of Romans and of Jewish leaders that speaks in some ways to the guilt of the whole world in rejecting Jesus. They had united in their purpose to snuff out Christ. We're not sure just how many men showed up that night, but it was likely more than would typically be sent to arrest one person. The whole group here is led by a familiar face, uh, one that we saw back in chapter 13. Of course, it's Judas, and his inside knowledge about Jesus meant that he knew where Jesus and the disciples would likely be. We picture, we can see Judas, and he's kind of standing between these two groups. One group, the, the group that's in front of him, is the group that he had been a part of for roughly the past three years, some of his closest friends. And the other is this group of strangers who had paid him to betray his friend and his teacher. As we see the scene unfold, it could be that the rest of the disciples see Judas arrive and start to wonder why these soldiers and these officers are with him. Remember, they didn't know that this was going to happen. They didn't know that Judas was going to betray Christ. They may have said, what's, what's Judas doing with these guys? Some of them may have connected the dots pretty quickly, but some of them may have just been confused about what Judas was doing with this group of, of enemies John seems to indicate that there was a moment of tension, maybe this moment of awkward silence into which Jesus steps and he says, whom do you seek? That's a question, of course, that Jesus knows the answer to. It's a question he didn't have to ask. It's a question he knew was coming, but he, he could have started to sneak away. He could have tried to avoid being arrested, right? He could have made them make the first move. You tell me what you're here for. Instead, knowing what Judas was going to do and knowing that the authorities were coming for him, he had in some ways actively placed himself in the ideal spot for his enemies to arrest him. It's night. He is far away from the city where the, the crowds would have objected to his arrest or maybe tried to defend him. And, and the sleepy and the dumbfounded disciples are still trying to take all this in as Jesus all but surrenders himself into the hands of these authorities. I think John says it so well here. He says, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. <laughs> he steps forward into it knowing exactly what that meant. And yet, and yet, even as Jesus surrenders, even in the way that he surrenders to them, he shows that he's not lying down in defeat. Verses 5 and 6 describe how the mob said they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, they're, they're looking for a man. They're looking from, for some guy from a small town who had just been annoying them like a gnat for the past three years. And Jesus responds by saying that that that's who he is, but in doing it, he proclaims in some sort of a veiled way the divine name of God, I am. 
He stands before them in the flesh as Mary's son, but also as the word of God made flesh. And his simple words reveal a part of his glory in some way. They declare that that he is the God that Moses saw and that Moses heard in the burning bush. You remember that scene where God's name, I am, is revealed. And Moses there saw that bush and he was compelled to take off his shoes and to hide his face in light of God's glory. And in some way, in some small way, and an involuntary way even, despite their denial of his, his deity, at the words of Jesus saying, I am the soldiers and the officials, what do they do? They fall to the ground. It seems like they're probably backing away from him and, and maybe crumble like dominoes in some awkward moment. I don't think this was a willing kneeling I don't think it even was a a divinely forced act of worship. I think it was just sort of a clumsy stumbling before the boldness of Jesus. Just one more indication of just exactly who is in charge here. We're reminded in verse 5 that Judas was standing with them. Judas was identifying himself with the enemies of Jesus. And if he's standing with them, then he too likely fell to the ground with them when Jesus said, I am those in this scene who seem to be in power are now on the ground before Jesus. I think this reminds us that one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even those who seem to be in power now are pawns in God's hands. What we might think about Old Testament stories, the one that came to mind this week for me was that of Esther and Mordecai. And while Naaman and the king assumed that they were in control, it was God who was working out his plans through and even in spite of them wielding their power because God is always the one who is in charge in every circumstance. Our world is filled with people who ignore or reject Jesus. It's filled with people who actively reject him or discredit him. It's filled with those who have walked with him and now are betraying him. And while they wield their power now, we know that God is sovereign over them and they will one day bow before him as king and God. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We don't say that in some triumphal sense because our hope is that they would do it now that they would bow their knee now before Christ returns, but we have confidence that they will see his glory one day and they will bow before him on the last day. As the narrative continues, I think John helps us to see the love of Jesus for his own and even the love of Jesus for his enemies. We see Jesus not looking to his own interests, but the interests of others. He models for the disciples and for us the kind of love that he commands in chapter 13. He begins to reveal that his arrest and his death are what they're going to accomplish for them. Once the soldiers seem to have reestablished themselves, get back on their feet, Jesus again says, who are you looking for? They again say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, to which he says, I told you that I am he, subtly again taking control of the situation where he's supposed to be the victim. He's in control though. And having taken control and demonstrated his power, Jesus starts to make demands. He's being arrested, but he starts to make demands. And they're not demands on behalf of himself. They're demands on behalf of his disciples. He says, look, you're looking for me, right? Here I am. You can take me. 
but don't touch my friends. Let my friends go. What a beautiful Savior he is. In chapter 17, you remember he prays that the Father will protect his disciples because he's leaving. He's departing. He won't be with them anymore. He can't do this once he's gone. But for now, he's here, and so he protects them in this moment. His protection is a fulfillment, he says, of, of what he said in the previous chapter, that he would not lose any of those that were his, except for Judas, whose betrayal had also been prophesied. And so we see the, the love of Jesus for his own, and we see the fact that because he had promised to protect them, he would. He said that he would protect them, and because he said it, he would. Our God keeps his word to us. And so we too, like the disciples in this situation, we too can have confidence that the one who prayed for us, the one who promised to never leave us and to never forsake us, that he will keep our going out and our coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Our God will guard and he will keep us even in the darkest nights. And yet it's not only his words that give us hope, but it's his actions as well. When, when the night is filled with those who desire to harm us, we serve a savior who steps forward and says, you're looking for me, arrest me, kill me and let my friends go. Even before we arrive at the cross, do you see what we start to see? We see Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We see Jesus taking our place, bearing our guilt, facing our judgment. We are guilty, all of us. We are guilty, and we deserve, therefore, to be arrested, as it were. And yet Christ steps forward and says, no, arrest me, take me, and let my friends go. And yet Peter's not ready for that. Peter's not ready to let Jesus be arrested so that he can go free. And so Peter is ready to take matters into his own hands. He's filled with so many emotions, I think, in this moment, including love for Christ. He... He's acting in some sort of anger. He's acting rashly, but he's acting in deep love for Jesus in this moment. And he also, I think he wants to be true to his word from back in chapter 13. Remember, he told Jesus, I will die for you, not the other way around. Jesus is saying, let me be arrested instead of Jesus. So he draws his sword and he strikes at the servant of the high priest. I was reading that this week and realized I've grown very accustomed to this story and fail to see how shocking it is that Peter was so violent in this moment. I, Peter was not aiming for the ear. <laughs> I, I, this is a trained soldier, as Joshua pointed out to me. That's probably the only reason that he was able to avoid getting hit in the head or the neck or something like that. Can you imagine how, how bad this could have been? Peter is ready to kill in order to set Christ free. I think that shows us Peter's heart, but I think it also shows us how foolish we can be when we start to seek our own salvation or seek our own protection or try to take matters into our own hands. Jesus, of course, immediately rebukes Peter. We know from the other gospels that he heals this man Malchus's 
ear, which I think is the only reason that Peter was not also arrested or tried for something. They were all just shocked at what had happened and they let Peter go somehow. Again, Peter's, Jesus is in control. But Jesus rebukes Peter and he appeals to him with these words, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter's act of violence was intended to stop the arrest of Jesus. But Jesus knows that for him not to be arrested is for him to not fulfill the purpose for which he came. It would mean that he does not arrive at his appointed hour. And here Jesus describes that hour that we've been talking about as the moment that he's going to drink the cup of the Father. In the Old Testament, the cup of God is most often refers to the cup of his wrath. Jeremiah 25, uh, verses 15 to 29, helps us to understand this. Let me just read part of that. He says in that chapter, Jeremiah 25, beginning in verse 15, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. And then Jeremiah lists all the nations and continues in verse 27. Then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink and be drunk and vomit, fall and rise no more because of the sword that I am sending among you. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you must drink. For behold, I begin the work, to work disaster at the city that is called by my name, and shall you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. This cup of God's wrath is a cup for everyone to drink, because everyone has sinned. And because all have sinned, all must drink the cup of judgment for sin. But what if someone drank the cup? For us. What if there was someone who lived a sinless life and therefore was not in this group that had to drink the cup because of his own sins? And then he said, I'll drink it. I'll drink it for the world. You might hear that possibility and want to be like Peter. In our pride and our foolishness, we step in like Peter and we start swinging our sword, the sword of our own power, the sword of our own good works, the sword of our own will. But all of our swinging of our swords just causes Pain and bloodshed and difficulty, it doesn't work. Rather, we just need to listen to Jesus and we put away our sword. We put away the sword of our own efforts and we see in him the one who has come to drink the cup on our behalf and to take God's wrath for us so that we can be his children forever. Jesus has come to drink the cup of God's wrath so that we don't have to. And he does it willingly. 
by walking into the jaws of death itself for us. I think closely related to this idea of walking into the jaws of death, closely related to drinking the cup of God's wrath, we see in verses 12 to 27 that Jesus came to die so that we do not have to. Jesus came to die so that we don't have to. Verse 12 tells us that they bound Jesus, they led him out of the garden, possibly back the same way that he had come entering the city through an east gate. It could be that they entered through the same gate that he had come through less than a week ago in broad daylight to cries of Hosanna. And yet now he's entering through that gate in the darkness by the light of torches kept in line with swords and spears. In John's telling, he highlights Jesus before Annas and then before Pilate with a brief mention of Caiaphas and no mention of Herod. These are the four people that Jesus appears before uh, in the Gospels. If you're curious about who Jesus stood before and in what order, it would seem that he was first taken to Annas, who was Caiaphas's father-in-law. He was not the high priest according to the Roman authorities, but he seems to have held some authority in the, light, in the eyes of the, the Jewish people, and he's even referred to as the high priest, I think, in verse 19. Uh, so there's kind of, there's not two high priests, but yeah, there kind of are. Um, so the Jewish leaders bring Jesus first to, to Annas, which is what's described in verses 19 to 23, and then in verse 24, it's mentioned that Annas sent Jesus to Caiaphas, and then without any description of what happened there, we're told in verse 28 that Jesus was led from Caiaphas to Pilate. Uh, the other gospels tell us that Pilate at some point sent Jesus to Herod, and then Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate. So that's kind of what happens here, and we'll see that unfold uh, today and in, in, the, in the coming weeks. Uh, but more than giving us an order of, a, order, of a, order of events, John is most concerned with reminding us that Caiaphas, whom Jesus would eventually stand before, had made that unintended prophecy as the leaders were grasp, grappling with what to do with Jesus in light of the resurrection of Lazarus. You remember that from John eleven forty nine through 50, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And that prophecy, restated here in verse 14, it, with particular purpose by John, restated in verse 14, informs everything else that we read about in Jesus' trial before Annas and the denial of Peter. It highlights something for us. It highlights the substitutionary nature of what Jesus is doing in these moments. It shows us that he is taking our place. Notice how John sandwiches the description of Jesus before Annas between the threefold denial of Peter. Maybe something he learned from Mark's gospel. Uh, we find in verse 15 that Peter and another unnamed disciple, which is almost certainly John, followed Jesus arriving at the home of Annas. John was known to this household, so they let him in, and then John used his clout to get Peter in. And as Peter's just passing through this gate, a servant girl casually asks him, uh, are you a disciple too? And Peter says, I am not. The scene recalls the one in the garden, doesn't it? Where Jesus willingly steps forward and says to those looking for him, I am he. And now Peter is trying to hide who he is and he tells this girl, I 
am not. Jesus had put himself forward as a sacrificial offering for his disciples, but Peter denies his association with Jesus to protect his own skin. John then talks about how those who had arrested Peter were gathered around a fire to keep warm. And we see that Peter joins them. And the statement of verse 18 says that he was standing with them. It reminds us of verse 5 where we're told that Judas was standing with them. In the face of all this opposition, Peter has forgotten. He's forgotten who he is. He's forgotten who he should stand with. Pressured by the world and the flesh and the evil one, we too sometimes forget who we are. We forget who we stand with. We act like Peter. As Peter lurks in the shadows, just a stone's throw away from Jesus, Jesus is being examined by his accusers. He's responding to their questions by emphasizing that he had done nothing in secret. That's, that's the main emphasis of his response. They asked him questions about his disciples and his teaching, but Jesus knew that there's no reason for the, him to answer them. So instead, he, he told them that his teaching had always been done in the open for them and anyone else to hear. In almost a near echo of the parents of the man born blind in chapter 9, Jesus says, ask the people who listen to me. <laughs> they know what I said. You can talk to them. They'll tell you what I said. Jesus, in some sense, is unwilling to play their game. And in his unwillingness to play their game, he earns the first of many blows from them. This one, presumably, for disrespecting the high priest. But Jesus knows that he is innocent. And so he tells the man who hit him to explain what was wrong about what he said. And then he asks him, asks him a question as only Jesus could. He says, if what I said was, was right, then why did you hit me? Can you imagine being asked that question by Jesus in that moment? It's the innocence of Jesus that's made clear in this joke of an interrogation. He had done nothing wrong, and certainly nothing deserving of death. And yet Annas and Caiaphas would send him to the Romans, believing that it would be expedient for one man to die for the nation. And it was his innocence that meant he could die so that we don't have to. He never said, he never did anything wrong, ever. His words, his actions were never deserving of any blows, let alone death. And therefore he could die for we who have sinned, for we who do deserve death. Peter's denial that's picked back up again highlights the undeniable fact that we are hopeless unless Jesus takes our place before the courts of this world and before the divine court of heaven. As Jesus is being put on trial, in some sense, Peter is being put on trial. And in verses 25 to 27, he starts to bring evidence against himself, two more pieces of evidence against himself until the the crow of the rooster is sort of the final gavel that declares he is guilty. And his denial of Jesus is our denial of Jesus. It shows us that no one is righteous in and of themselves. And yet even in this, don't we know there's another interrogation coming in chapter 21? That Peter is different 
than Judas because Jesus is going to come and offer his friend forgiveness and he's even going to send him in the power of the Spirit to stand firm for the gospel. But, but for now, we, we come face to face with our guilt. We come face to face with our inability to save ourselves and the reality that Jesus is the sinless Savior who takes our place, drinking the cup of God's wrath so that we don't have to and dying so that we can have life. As we draw to a close, I see two responses. At least we'll highlight two. (laughs) Two identities that we can take up. And the first is to be worshipers of Jesus. I'm compelled by this passage to be a worshiper of Jesus. Jesus willingly walked into the jaws of death for us, and now we worship him as our redeemer and our resurrected king. We, we see in him our only hope of salvation, knowing that if we rely on our own strength or our own wisdom or our own righteousness, we will fail and we will fall. But we can come to Christ in repentance and faith, knowing that he has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And as worshipers of Jesus, we become witnesses for Jesus. That's the second identity. Witnesses for Jesus. In the strength of the spirit, of, of, of God's Spirit, we, like Peter, can be changed. Peter, who denied Jesus in this moment, on the day of Pentecost and in the years that follow, would stand up and he would say, Not, I am not a disciple of Jesus, but I am a disciple of Jesus. And if that means you're going to kill me, so be it. We are those who who witness to what Christ has done by not forgetting who we are, not forgetting who we stand with, even in the face of opposition, in the dark of night that we say, no, I am with Jesus. I am a follower of Christ. I stand with God's people. We know that we're children of God through faith, and we stand with our Savior, and we stand with everyone who trusts in him. We say with Paul in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Why would I ever be ashamed of Christ? Why would I ever be ashamed of his gospel? There's no way to be ashamed of one who willingly walks into death for us. Jesus willingly walked into death for us so that we might worship him as our Savior and so that we might be witnesses to the world of the glory of a God who sent his Son to drink the cup of wrath for us and to die in our place. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word and then I will close this in prayer. Father, would you give us fresh eyes to see Jesus, to see the the beauty of what he has done in drinking the cup of wrath, to see the beauty of what he has done in dying in our place. Lord, would you cause us to be those whose lives are marked by worship of you, and by being witnesses for you. Lord, that we would be ready to say, I am a disciple of Jesus. Lord, that we would not be ashamed of that. 
and we would be ready to stand with you no matter what. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.